I guess we should talk about Christmas. Do we need to talk about Christmas? Yeah, let's talk about Christmas. Okay. The capacity is five cubit tons of turkey served in that two-week period. Welcome to the December episode of the 21cc podcast, brought to you by the Chartered Institute of Building. I'm Rod Sweet, editor of Global Construction Review. To get us into the Christmas mood, Justin Stanton explores the business of construction site catering and the logistical challenge of the site Christmas lunch. Our jargon buster clears up any confusion over what IFC and Kobe might be. And we speak to two people intimately involved in the epic project to build the Grand Egyptian Museum through political upheaval, a pandemic, and more. But first, with the topic of asylum seekers dominating headlines, CM Deputy Editor Christina Lago met with one refugee, an engineer and project manager originally from Yemen, who loves his job with contractor Kier. I cannot imagine my, my life without uh, construction, without uh, my job. I love it. I, I, I love it. I like it. I love it. I'm in love with it. It's my life. Meet Omar al Khuraibi. Omar arrived in the UK a few years ago as an asylum seeker to reunite with his family. He's a qualified engineer with over 20 years of experience as a project manager in the United Arab Emirates. And his dream is to continue his career as a construction project manager here in Britain, a journey he's already started since joining Kia in May as a sub-agent. Here, Omar tells us his story. First of all, thank you, Christina, for having me. I am uh, from uh, originally from Yemen, that time called South Arabia, and then beca- be, uh, becomes uh, South Yemen. And after the union with the North Yemen became a Republic of Yemen. I born among the uh, lovely family, very good father and mother, a lovely brothers and sisters. I have completed my uh, primary and secondary uh, education in Yemen. After that, I have been uh, offered a scholarship to the Soviet Union, that time called Soviet Union. I have completed my education over there in St. Petersburg. After that, I have worked in uh, United Arab Emirates for the last approximately 20 years. After which, I have decided to join my family, who's, uh, who's living here, who came before me to the UK. I have a lovely wife and brilliant four children, for whom I'm working, trying to be the best father. So I'm here. Omar approached Refugate, a non-profit organization working with people who have claimed asylum in the UK to help them return to their previous careers. Anna Jones, co-founder and chief exec of Refugate, tell us more about what she and her team does. We work with people to support themselves, essentially to live in the UK um, with dignity and, to, and part of that, a huge part of that is accessing meaningful employment, commensurate with people's skills and experience. So, um, we found that there was a huge number of people that we met kind of in 2016 that were refugees in the UK, um, but who, and who had incredible skills, um, neurosurgeons, engineers, and um, lawyers, teachers, but who were vastly underemployed, unemployed, or even in exploited labour. Anna says that one big barrier that refugees face when finding jobs here is a lack of work experience in the UK and misunderstanding around gaps in CVs. Something that resonated with Omar, who despite having a good command of English, the right qualifications and over two decades of experience in construction project management, struggled to find a job in his field. First barrier I have to overcome is the professional gap, which already started, accumulated that 
from my day one I have uh, arrived here having a three years um, professional gap is not 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 easy uh, thing not, not 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 that thing that we can be ignored and uh, jump to that same role you had before especially in management so that was scaring me because I knew myself I knew that I have to start from some point which is a little down and I decided that should I should have a restart and that is my target restart Many businesses have automated their recruitment processes, which means these CVs are automatically rejected, regardless of how relevant their skills or experience might be. Refiate helps translating CVs when dealing with employers. On paper, in theory, should be very, very highly employable. Um, we then were finding that there was a huge, huge lag in kind of having all of that sorted and being able to get that first role in the UK. And when we dug into it, it was very much about that lack of UK recognised work experience, kind of misunderstandings around um, gaps on CVs. So where people have been out of work for kind of in a couple of years, their CV just falling to the bottom of the pile with so many hiring departments, um, transferable experience so for example if someone's worked in construction but in the Middle East um, how that transfers into a UK context and we found that businesses had a lot of these questions but there wasn't really anyone to have that conversation with or ask. Anna says that most businesses have a light bulb moment when the recruitment teams meet candidates in person and realize that an engineer from the Middle East or Ukraine is very similar to one here in the UK. Kia partnered with Refuate this year to provide mentoring and employment opportunities to refugees with a background in construction. Anna says that Refuate's relationship with Kia is one of the most successful ones they have had to date and hopes more contractors will follow their steps. Here, Umar tells us about his experience at Kia since he joined us as an agent earlier in May. It's a wonderful journey, in fact, because uh, I'm lucky to to uh, to join um, a such team, a cooperative team, and uh, especially the team I I'm in now. Uh, they are cooperative, um, supportive, which is very important. I'm happy to join such company, a big company. I believe that they are understanding me. Um, I hope that I can I can I can uh, help in 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 achieving the the, the targets. But my personal uh, skill I have brought, or skills you can say, first of all, my unusual uh, decisions uh, to, to, to shorten the, 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 the way to the target to be achieved in the, in the construction. Um, uh, a relationship, maintaining a relationship with uh, the client, with the uh, public, with the surrounding uh, parts of the contract. I have my own way which is uh, welcomed, lovely welcomed by, by the team, which is good. Here is proud of the work it's done with refugees and emphasizes almost positive contribution to the company and how the program with Refuate, which is ongoing, has been welcomed across all levels of the business. Before saying goodbye to Omar, here are a few words of advice from him to other people who might be in a similar situation like he was when he arrived in the UK. Do what you like. Follow that. Work on profession you are in love with. That's it. That's the main thing. Be brave. Don't hesitate. Go ahead. Achieve your targets. Don't sit. No matter. No matter what background you are, what barriers you have, everything can be overcome. You can learn more about the work that Refuate does with Kia and other companies in CIOB People 
and at Refuate's website, refuate.org. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Christina and Omar. Now, construction site catering has come a long way from the grease and stodge of yesteryear. But one thing hasn't changed. The enduringly popular site Christmas lunch, as Justin found out. It's lunchtime on site. Hmm, what's on the menu? Chef's special pasta. Mexican pulled pork burrito served with rice and salad. Roast chicken with roast potatoes, vegetables and gravy. I think I'll have the burrito. That was the menu choice I faced while I visited a canteen on a major construction site in West London recently. The canteen is run by Bon Appetit, a site catering specialist with more than 150 staff, providing 30,000 good value fresh meals every day for construction site workers. Fed the workforce on the London Olympic Stadium build. Its past and current clients include the likes of Balfour Beatty, Berkeley, Costain, Crossrail and Skanska. Founded and run by the Manzi family, Bon Appetit moved into site catering in 1980. Much like the industry and the workforce it serves, Bon Appetit has evolved. As both part of that evolution and to drive it further, Robert and Paolo Manzi recently appointed Antonio Matisse to the board. Antonio is renowned in catering circles as co-founder of the Café Nero coffee bar chain and founder of the more upscale Café Fratelli espresso bar and deli chain. I talked to Antonio about what the workforce is eating and the challenges facing site catering. Apologies in advance for any sound quality issues. Is the diversity of the workforce a challenge? It's definitely changed. I think historically it was very much British and Irish and um, what their requirements were, you know, greasy breakfasts and stodgy lunches were required at those days. Now it's a lot more diverse, uh, Eastern Bloc community being the sort of the prominent recruiter in, in, in this industry. And also uh, we're offering more halal mills, bigger Muslim community within the construction industry as well. So yeah, definitely has changed over the 40 years that the Mandys have been involved in this business. So what about special days in the calendar? We, we try to focus on particular events. So f- for instance, with a line next week, we're doing a Romanian day trying to um, you know come up with some classic Romanian dishes that uh, the contractors will recognize and film you know comfortable uh, choosing as it were and also opening up those culinary delights to the other uh, people in the workforce uh, we, we do things for um, special celebratory days for every ethnic community whether it's the Diwali or whether it's um, you know St George's Day or whether it's St Patrick's Day we try to do something that reflects the community and also engages the community to to celebrate those days as a, as a group rather than as individuals. What's typically the most popular breakfast or lunch? I think hands down eggs, you know, um, massive protein source. Um, you know, um, I think if you would have gone back a number of years, it would have been bacon and sausages. Uh, but I think, you know, we're doing a lot more omelettes, a lot more scrambled eggs. I think the, the, there's enough data out there about um, eggs within people's diets. And I think by far probably chicken as a lunch source in any given, you know, whether it's breaded or whether it's a breast on a salad or whether it's with uh, potatoes, it seems to be the most a popular dish by far. And still fish on a Friday? Definitely fish on a Friday. Fish and chips is by far our most successful 
Friday chosen lunch. And uh, in the past, when we've had different uh, people operating some of our sites that have tried to mix it up a little bit by doing a variation on a fish, uh, it's not gone down well. They want their fish and chips, and it's part of the construction culture to expect it. Are site workers developing an appetite for healthier options? Absolutely. You know, it's not the traditional egg and bacon sandwich or, you know, sausage sandwich in the morning. It's uh, a lot more porridges, as I said, a lot more scrambled eggs, definitely in the morning and throughout the day. They're they're far more conscientious about um, the type of food. So they want a protein source and and they're keen to have a vegetable source as well. Um, so our variety of having vegan options, vegetarian options, uh, as well as, you know, um, a la carte options like wraps and burgers and chicken burgers uh, and options like that, they're, they're more and more popular. What are the plans for the festive period? What's on the menu? What we've found over recent years, um, all our clients want to have an, a traditional Christmas dinner and we're, we're probably going to be having about 30,000 Christmas lunches that we'll be preparing uh, in the coming weeks. So it starts about the 10th of December up until the guys are off about the 20th. And uh, that's our busiest period of the year. And it's a huge amount of work for our chefs and our workforce to deliver those lunches. And it's always a positive time because in most cases, the contractor is providing that Christmas lunch for free to the workforce so it's very well received the capacity is five cubic tons of turkey served in that two-week period is there any research to prove the benefit of a professional approach to site catering Uh, our research shows that if a site is subsidized hands down a hundred percent of the workforce appreciate it it has a huge impact on whether people have a breakfast and a lunch. In most cases, what we've found is if it's not subsidized, they'll have an either or. If it's subsidized, they'll have both, which is extremely important considering, you know, where the individuals that work on these sites are finding themselves financially, you know, so they're put under pressure, not only to attend a site and do a great job, but also their own personal pressures of mortgage rates and utility bills put pressure on what they can spend every day so we find that certainly our research has shown that if it's subsidized the workforce certainly celebrate that and utilize that and in turn obviously that benefits the individual's nutritional position their their mental health and their i suppose in some respects their willingness to come to that site to work they certainly have a different perspective on their the the people they're working for if they're provided or subsidized their lunches they have a they, they're a lot more positive about the, the work they're doing and the and who they're working for how do you see construction site catering evolving i think there's two aspects to that question one aspect is the changing face of tech on site you know there's a, a lot more vending opportunities self-service coffee machines self-service hot food machines uh, a lot of construction sites don't have the budget to accommodate a, um, you know, a, a full canteen. So we see that side evolving and uh, not that AI will take over the world, but self-service tills and stuff like that. We think that will be a development, you know, be a huge aspect of development. 
And on the other side, it's the engagement between the logistics and the procurement guys and the human resources teams of construction companies that will see the benefit of, um, you know, subsidizing the workforce in relation to achieving their goal, which is happy staff, on site, on time, contracts completed on time, and um, everyone sort of has a win-win. Thanks, Antonio. Now it's time to get stuck into that burrito. Hang on a minute, Justin. Put the salt down. We need you to set up this month's Jargon Buster first. Welcome to 21cc's Jargon Buster. I'm Justin Stanton, editor of BIM Plus, and each month 21cc tackles an acronym or bit of industry slang related to construction and its modernisation. This month, due to popular demand, we're tackling two acronyms at the heart of information management, the IFC and COBE data formats, or to spell them out, industry foundation classes and construction operations building information exchange. Who better to define these two than digital construction champion of 2022 and head of R&D at the Build Data Group Research Institute, Emma Hooper. She is an information and IFC evangelist and one of only a handful of people in the world certified as being proficient in Kobe. Over to you, Emma. IFC enables objects. And when I say objects, I mean anything from a whole project, bridge, building, space, system, pump, task, resource or actor with basic ID metadata and history to be connected to things like single properties, whole documents, geometrical data, materials, classifications, external databases, or importantly, other objects. It basically sets out how objects are ordered and how they relate to each other. From this, you can quite quickly build up a very detailed connected data set that represents a physical built asset. This is a data model, but it's not necessarily a 3D model. It can contain geometrical data, but it doesn't have to. It's a model which sits in the background, helping to connect data in databases. We can then visualize it in many ways, from dashboards, to tables, to reports, to even drawings, to provide information for people to consume. It is the information model from ISO 19650, and when we move away from file-based working to discrete data, it has the potential to be the main data set of a CDE where the data model is enriched by many sources after the designers create the initial objects and even into the operational phase where it is kept up to date with the physical asset. This lays the foundations of everything digital from the golden thread to digital twins to knowledge graphs and accelerates AI, but in a more controlled way. Combined with the activities from ISO 19650, it creates filtered, consistent, trusted and predictable information. The use of a common data model utilising IFC actually simplifies the whole information management process as it gives us open, neutral and transparent common data framework to plug into. This is everything. But we need the technology to do it, and that is currently lacking in the mainstream. COBE is a filtered part of the IFC data model for the use case of operations and maintenance with specific constraints and rules. But what has made COBE so prominent 
is that the multifaceted data model of IOC has been flattened and visualized in tables so we can relate to it far better than the scariness of data models. So when people build upon COBE for other use cases, they are building upon a specific output and not the source IOC data model, which might have additional features which benefits the other use case far more. We should really be going back to the IOC source, work out what is needed through information requirements, and the subsequent data model can then be filtered and visualized in any way required. Always think IFC first, not Kobe. Thank you, Emma. Now we know our IFC from our Kobe. If there's a bit of industry jargon or an acronym that you'd like 21cc to tackle, drop us a line at 21cc at atompublishing.co.uk. Thanks, Emma, and bon appétit, Justin. Next year, we'll see the opening of the Grand Egyptian Museum on the Giza Plateau outside Cairo. At 90,000 square metres, it's bigger than the Louvre and a work of astonishing geometrical complexity. My colleague David Rogers went to check it out this year and spoke to members of the project team who've been part of the marathon effort since the beginning. There are several good reasons why the culture of ancient Egypt is so familiar to us today. One is that there's just so much of it to see. No one has any idea how many artefacts there are in existence, since it's hard enough just counting the museums that exhibit them. Maybe 40 institutions around the world with significant collections. One reason why there is so much to see is that Egyptian history lasted such an incredibly long time. Three and a half thousand years separated the pyramid builders from Cleopatra VII, yet both were part of a continuous Nile Valley culture. The third reason is the extraordinary beauty of that culture's art and design. Think of a sculpture of the cat goddess Bast, or the bust of Nefertiti. All this is part of our heritage, regardless of where we were born. Up until now, this immense endowment has never had a physical centre where it can be brought together and organised into a coherent story. This is the purpose of the Grand Egyptian Museum, or GEM as it's known. When it's fully open next year, it will be an immense cultural complex on the plateau of Giza, in sight of the Great Pyramids and with its own airport to handle the 13 million people a year who are expected to visit. The museum was put forward as an idea in the early 1990s, but the project only really came together in the 2000s, when the Japan International Cooperation Agency, or JICA, agreed to provide funding. Perahan Elwi, Vice President of American Project Manager Hill International, was concerned with the project from its earliest days. What happened is that in 2010, Hill International was selected by the Ministry of Culture to provide the project management services for the GEM construction. Just two years later, uh, V6 Oraskum were awarded the contract in uh, January 2012. This is where uh, our uh, journey as Hill International started with the project. Unfortunately for Hill and its fellow consultant Erhaf, this was not the ideal time to be starting out on a huge, challenging project that relied on government leadership. No sooner had they begun pulling the construction team together than Egypt was engulfed in the Arab Spring. The story of what happens next is taken up by Walid Abdel Fattah, the president of Hill's Middle Eastern and North African division. I think we managed to, uh, to basically to maintain the team on the ground maintain our, our uh, technical team and also put the tender document together to be able to go out for tender for the international uh, contractors uh, and to conclude the tender and do the uh, evaluation and award in early uh, 2012 
in in such an uh, instability in the, for the political situation, which is, I believe, it's a credit for Hill International to be able to to deliver this such a milestone for the project. And yeah. I think by by April, I think by April 2012, uh, we had uh, the kickoff or the start of the project by uh, P6 of Ascom. Another issue that the team had to overcome was that the building's architect, Dublin-based Hennigan Peng, had not been kept on to explain their design to the people who had to construct it. And as it turned out, they were badly missed. We we actually in the beginning in the beginning they were they were on board, but as as you just mentioned, uh, if you imagine you uh, as a contractor want to actually implement such a concept design, uh, it's it needs a lot of explanation. There's uh, the concept was going going from the three permits going to one one particular point, so you don't have any any single straight line in the whole thing. Just the, everything is coming to an angle, and also you have the the three or the four dimension uh, stainless steel roof on the top of it, uh, the type of concrete, the levels. Uh, it's just it's just the project is is really a 4D in all dimension. Although the team managed to keep the project in being. They knew that sooner or later the government would have to re-engage with it and begin thinking about those decisions that only a client can make. In the event, it was the Egyptian army that came to the rescue. From 12 till 16 was maintaining, keep running with available budget, available currencies, available contractual obligations, try to achieve as much as possible milestones. So we kept the project ongoing as with all the available resources. Until I think we had 2016, when when the 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 core engineer, the Egyptian core engineer came came on board, and they started to have the vision. They start they start to make the hard calls. The man who took over the direction of the museum, Major General Aftev Mofta, was a former architect who'd taken up the profession of arms, and he turned out to be the right man in the right place at the right time. He had made some, as I said, some difficult calls. Uh, based on his knowledge, uh, sometimes he used to be driving the the he holding the the wheel quite, quite uh, tough to make it running. Mm-hmm. And when people just get relaxed, he just uh, wake them up and ask him to to be uh, in place. He was very I think he was very key uh, in, in coordinating with the government and make sure that enough fund is around, is available, payment is being made, coordination with JICA. So he was. I mean, he, he happened to be military, but at the end of the day, he's an he's an architect with, with technical uh, knowledge. He made some he made some hard calls, just to to be honest. Some people would would like it, some people would not like it. As I said, I mean, you would do different, I would do differently, everybody would do it differently. But we need to reach a point where the project, and I think the project has come up to a conclusion, which is. At least, I would say, uh, good or above expectation. As a result of making those tough calls, the project is now all but complete, and the team are running through their snagging list and waiting for the Ministry of Tourism and Antiquities to complete the installation of the exhibits and announce the date of the grand opening. Looking back over the epic struggle to produce the museum, what moments stand out for the project team? Uh, one of the most daunting uh, challenges were, was uh, during and after covid when uh, actually the museum was uh, still in construction. Uh, we didn't stop work as uh, many other places in the planet. Also, uh, putting the steel structure actually in place was one big challenge. Another big challenge was having this uh, white concrete on the top of the ceiling. You know, we had the fair face, white fair face concrete 
which is something that we're proud to have uh, completed in this uh, project. We had our difficulties at the beginning until the contractor actually made the learning curve through and uh, we got a very reasonable uh, end product, which is, I think we're all proud to have now. I think I remember going to the site and it was uh, just a piece of uh, sand going there and in April in April uh, 2010 and then I, I my, my second uh, picture the second picture of my head would be when we signed the contract with the main contractor uh, in early uh, 2012 again we still we're still on the sand uh, there there and then as you as you go as you go from there and you, you start seeing the project uh, realize going through from the structure and the difficulty that we have seen through the structural to achieve the alignments and the approvals and then when you start going through conservation centers and uh, the, the artifacts start moving flowing from the conservation center to the to the main building to the actual procurement of these exhibitions and make sure this is all going to happen can delivered and it happened between Italy, Belgium, Germany, Spain, and to coordinate, make sure to put the orders. And it's a, it's like, a, it needs a movie. It's like a, just running in my head now. Thank you, David, Perihan, and Walid. If you want to learn more about this fascinating project, check out David's feature on Global Construction Review. That's all we have time for this month. We hope you found it interesting. If you like the podcast, tell others by rating it wherever you found it. Give us a mention on social media with the hashtag 21ccpodcast. You can email us on 21cc at atompublishing.co.uk. Thanks so much for listening and have a restorative festive season.